Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. In a way, I think I'm always working because whenever I watch TV or talk to somebody, I'm always thinking about how I could... You know, would this work in a book? This sounds terrible. It's not like you're going to end up in my next book here, I promise. But <laughs> the it's, next you never it's know. always, <laughs> it's always in the know. back of my mind, I think. It's so, it's so important for me. Hi and welcome to the Bridge Builders Society pod, the BBS pod, where you meet the fantastic people who connect countries, cultures and businesses around the world. We're recording this in Stockholm. I'm Tina Meinegard Björs. My daytime job is as foreign news reporter at the Swedish news agency TT. And I'm Josephine Charpentier. I'm an entrepreneur and PR expert with a soft spot for technology. Today we're very proud to introduce you to crime author extraordinaire Camilla Grebe. Camilla has written a long line of award-winning psychological nail-biters that have gotten lots of attention internationally as well as here in Sweden. And I'm proud enough to call Camilla my friend. We've actually been in book circles together. And I see her one day signing books in France, thereafter on a book tour in Norway, thereafter signing a deal with New Line Cinema in Hollywood. And she just released her new book called The Shadow Hunter, or something like it in Swedish. Originally an economist, Camilla is disciplined and creative beyond. Welcome, Camilla. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So we cannot wait to dive into your story. But first, we would like you to bring us to the very boring summer of 2004. Yeah, I, I was on vacation and uh, didn't have much to do. I was I was kind of frustrated. I wasn't happy with my job um, and I was sitting at home and um, with my computer, my laptop and started to write a story, which was Something I'd never done before. Um, I'd never writ- written anything, uh, anything fiction-wise, so to speak. And um, when I'd finished was what was to be the first chapter, I sent it to my sister via email, and um, I wrote. Uh, I've written the first chapter in a book. Now you write the second chapter, and. Um, you know, I had no idea in uh, at that time, uh, point in time that this was going to change my life fundamentally and it would throw me into a whole new world and it would change my career. I, would, I was 40 when my first book was published, so I never, I never worked with um, fiction before that, but... Um, my my sister accepted the challenge and about two weeks later she uh, sent me an email with the second chapter and then we started writing the first book. Amazing story. So tell us about your life story. You grew up in here in Stockholm, right? And uh, when did you discover writing? You know, uh, I'd like to say that everything started with uh, reading and uh, whenever somebody comes to me and asks me how do you become a good writer, I... I always uh, answer that you uh, you should read a lot because that's um, that's where it starts. That's how how you learn the 
the craft. As a child, I grew up in a home filled with books. Me and my sister, my younger sister, we read read a lot of books from a very young age, and uh, especially crime fiction, although... There were all kinds of different different books. There were biographies and uh, historical books and the great classics. But we very early started reading crime and suspense novels. And uh, we especially liked the, the very violent books, I remember. Uh, as a, I think as an eight-year-old, I, I read a lot of Sjöval Wale, which is a Swedish author couple. They wow, wrote, that's early. <laughs> they wrote a lot of political thrillers yeah. uh, and crime novels in the 70s. And uh, they were very violent. And uh, I was just fascinated by this. And I think that's where my my love to the genre sort of, that's where I established this feeling for the genre and, and became um, obsessed with crime novels. Wow. Mm-hmm. But instead of becoming a detective, you actually went to the prestigious Stockholm School of Economics or Handelshögskolan. Why? Why was that? And how and was even, that? You know, even today, I, I I can't really answer that question properly because there was no good reason for it. it. I wasn't particularly interested in economics or business, but I was a really good student, so I had good grades, and I decided to apply to the university that was hardest to get into, basically, and that was uh, Stockholm School of Economics, or Handelshögskolan, as it's called in Swedish. And um, I applied, and I was accepted, and I started there just because uh, I had nothing else to do. And it was a good education. I got lots of friends, and it, um, you know, after that, I started a career in, in marketing. I began to work for Procter & Gamble in 1991, And I uh, continued in marketing for many years, but uh, I never had that. I never had the passion that I have for writing. It was never there. So did it feel right then to work in marketing? Well, at that point in time, I didn't have much to compare with, but I wasn't particularly happy within Procter & Gamble. I felt it was a very, very hard, uh, hardcore American company. It was up or out and... Everything was very structured. They weren't very creative. Same thing there. I made lots of friends. I had a good time, but uh, I never felt at home. And I, I questioned my, you know, my whole choice of education and career so much that eventually I resigned to go to go to art school, which I did for a year. Uh, but I very soon discovered that I was unable to support myself as an artist, and uh, I was a single mom at that point in time. So. I I got another job basically, and uh, things improved. But then, after a few years, I worked um, as a managing director for uh, an audiobook publishing house called uh, Storyside, and it's not to be confused with uh, Storytel, which is a distributor of audiobooks in in um, in Europe. And um, at that point in time, I met I met uh, with lots of authors, and I read many manuscripts to decide what we were going to publish. And I just thought, you know, uh, wouldn't it be great to be on the creative side instead of of the business side? I'd, I'd really like to do something more creative. Mm-hmm. That had always been a dream for me to be working with uh, within a creative field. But uh, I, I was always thinking more about design and arts. But um, then I started uh, dreaming about maybe writing something. So... That, that's really what led up to me starting to write this novel in 2004 and uh, contacting my sister. 
And that's quite courageous. You actually pursued your dream of writing creative um, fiction. And I guess that's a dream that quite a few people carry, but not very many people dare to pursue it. What did you learn from doing this? Oh my gosh, I learned so many things, but among the most important thing, and, and this I tell everybody who asks me, everybody who says they want to be an author, um, that's basically don't quit your day job because um, uh, you're going to need to support yourself. And it took so many years for me to be able to uh, to work as a full-time author, which I do now. It took almost 10 years. So I had uh, I had another job, but tr- tried to make time for writing most days of the week, basically. So in the beginning, I worked full time uh, within marketing, and then I then I moved on and started a consulting business and worked part time. And then finally, after ten years, I, I quit this other job. Mm, amazing. <laughs> so, that, but that's one thing. I mean, uh, don't quit your day job. But I, I learned, of course, I learned many other things. But one thing is that. This is this is like anything else. Writing is like anything else. If you want to become really good at it, you just need to practice. Practice makes perfect. So you need to write a lot, you need to read a lot, and, and it's going to take a lot of time. It's, don't they tell athlete, it ta- athletes it takes about 10,000 hours exactly. or something <laughs> to become really good at something? Yeah. It's same thing with writing. So you need to practice. And for, you know, um, to be able to... Um, um, to continue doing this uh, for years and years and years, I think you need to have this true passion for what you're doing because otherwise you just you you'll get bored and you you're gonna go move on to doing something else basically. Mm. And um, I had this passion. I was lucky enough to find this passion, this thing I was really uh, passionate about doing. I love the craft. I love uh, I love language. I love I love storytelling. <laughs> You debuted in 2009 uh, and you wrote together with your sister. What was that like? I've written five books with my sister and three books with uh, a friend. His name is Paul Leander Engström. And it's it's fun to have uh, a colleague when you're a writer because it's a very lonely job. And certainly you can also help each other. You can um, solve problems together. But it's also challenging because uh, sometimes you want different things, and uh, that can be that can be things that are related to the actual story or the characters. But it can also be other things like you may want to have a different work process. One person maybe wants to take the whole vacation off and spend with their family, and the other person may want to work, for example, or. Mm-hmm. So, so both in terms of working process, but also the content of the book, you need to make a lot of compromises when you are two persons. And in the end, that became a bit frustrating to me. Mm, I can imagine that. And 2015, you went solo. So why was that then? Well, it was partly because I wanted to... Um, uh, discover what my own voice, so to speak, would sound like. Because when you write with somebody else, it's quite interesting, actually. It, you know, it, it's not my voice and it's not my sister's voice, for example. It, it's like this third voice that emerges uh, in the space with the, between us. And um, I wanted to find out what it be, what it would sound like, uh, what it would be like to write on my own. Um, 
But also there were practical reasons. My sister is a psychologist and she wanted to pursue her career and she wasn't interested in becoming a full-time writer. And Paul and I, we had finished uh, the three books that we decided we were going to write. So I had all this, all this time and um, nice. I thought, <laughs> why not write something on my own? So I did that uh, and that became my first solo novel. So that was the fourth. Um, that was the first solo novel. And before that, I had written five books with my sister ah, okay. and three books with Paul. Mm. And the three with Paul had the Russian theme, yes. right? Mm. So you've given birth to four books since 2015, if we're in track. Mm-hmm. Is it right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so tell us briefly about them and how they've been received in the world. Well, for me, that was um, that was a bit of a ba- breakthrough for me, actually. My first solo novel, The, the Ice Beneath Her, was published in um, 23 languages, I think. And uh, sometimes I get the question how many countries it's sold in, but even I can't really answer that because uh, the English books are sold in, you know, Australia and Canada and so forth. But uh, it was successful, and um, that was in 2015, and also the film rights were acquired by uh, an American company in Hollywood uh, called New Line Cinema. And... um, In 2017 came my second solo book. Uh, It's called uh, After She's Gone. And 2018, the third, Inertia. (laughs) And then uh, my fourth was just published a few days ago in Sweden. It's called The Shadow Hunter or Skuggjägaren in Swedish. But now we're very curious. You have to tell us a bit, at least about the first book, right? What it's about. Well, uh, you know, know. <laughs> these these books are, um, um, I, w- I would say that they are crime novels, but uh, in some ways probably more close to what we in the business call psychological thrillers. Um, the books, um, all, all of them, they are loosely connected in, in a sort of series. We have this gallery of characters, but for each book I zoom in on different persons, so... The main character will not be the same one in the different books. And uh, they all also have uh, different themes, although they are crime stories. I mean, so if you like suspense, you can read them um, just because you like to be entertained and scared, I guess. But but they're also about uh, subjects such as xenophobia and... uh, identity and and uh, the the newest one the shadow hunter um, is a lot about it's a lot about gender because uh, it's the story of a serial killer and the three um, police women who um, who hunt this killer during three uh, periods in time so the first one works in the 70s and the second policewoman works in the 80s and the last one in present time so it, Via this, uh, I, I got the uh, opportunity to describe the development of what it's been like to be a female police officer in Sweden in, in different periods of time. And that, that was very interesting. 
And then you always have surprise elements in your books that we maybe yes. shouldn't say now. But sometimes you can't <laughs> trust. <laughs> sometimes you can't trust the narrator. No, the unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. <laughs> as they say in the business, is the term for that. And um, that's um, something that I used in in the first book, especially the ice beneath her. Yeah. I was surprised. <laughs> and I, I mean, if you look at that kind of books, the other famous books in that genre is uh, Gone Girl, for example, or Girl on the Train. Yep. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> I love those kind of stories. Yeah. So as a bridge builder, then, that is the grand theme of this podcast, Um You're really building bridges with your stories. You're sending out images of Swedish society into the world. What is your own take on this? What is it that you convey? I really don't have like an agenda. Uh, and I certainly don't have a political agenda, but I, I always try to work with themes and subjects that say something about society today. So in... Um, After she's gone, for example, um, it's a lot about xenophobia. It's about this small village in in Sweden called Ormberg, Ormberg, uh, which is a fictional village. It doesn't exist, but uh, everything's been shut down here. And you have this uh, refugee camp in the village and they found a body in the in the woods and start investigating this and uh, and very soon you'll find that many of the inhabitants in Ormbay think that the person who did this must be connected to the refugee camp. Uh, So this certainly is a very um, uh, a subject that is very discussed today in Sweden and also in other European countries because when I I visit other countries and uh, talk about my books, I get a lot of questions around this. Mm. So you're sending out uh, images of contemporary Sweden or contemporary society in a way. Yes, I guess I do. And um, I'm afraid those images are not always um, the nicest images of Sweden. (laughs) Uh, But I... You know, I've dis- I've discovered when I'm abroad that people sometimes have a very negative image of Sweden that is uh, much okay. more negative than what I have myself. Yeah, and um, we keep uh, talking a lot about... We always end up talking about uh, immigration and, and stuff like that, and crime, the crime rate in Sweden, how high is it really, and so forth. I know your books have certain... Th- themes uh, so you almost become educated even though you don't really realize you're educated because you're so mm. so thrilled when you're reading uh, you mentioned xenophobia talk mm. about a few others mm. of these subjects and why mm. you think that they are mm. important so in uh, inertia for example which is called dvalan in swedish it's uh, a lot about social media and um, the way I think the way we're changing uh, when we adapt or um, or interact with social media and, and the way it changes us as human beings, um, how eager we are to get likes on social media, for example. And um, I tried to um, come up with a story that was, you know, what 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 is the worst thing that could happen if somebody was really keen on getting likes on social media what would he or she do in order to do that so that's almost like a horror tale i would say 
Uh, and in um, The Shadow Hunter, like I mentioned before, it's about uh, female police officers. So women were allowed into the force in the end of the 1950s in Sweden. Before that, they weren't allowed to become police officers. And they That's were quite late. Yeah, <laughs> the resistance was fierce, I tell you. And um, the it came actually it came mainly from their own union, actually. Mm-hmm. Which, Why? which is odd. Well, because the union at that point in time consisted of men, and they were afraid that the police women would um, would get um, easier duties and uh, would uh, get higher salaries faster and stuff like that. They were afraid so of the competition. They were afraid of the competition, and not all of them, of course. There were many policemen who were very positive towards female police officers, but many were negative. And uh, I did a lot of research for this book. I I spent a lot of time in libraries. I, I read dissertations and books and also interviewed three female police officers. Uh, they were of different, you know, different ages. So one was around 75, for example. So she started working in the 60s. And I remember when I was in the basement of KB, which is the, the Royal Library, and looking through... Um, uh, press clips um, and um, I just it, it was the the weirdest thing because when I did the search for female police officers basically two kinds of articles came came up and it was either why they were shouldn't be allowed to work uh, or it was um, about um, their looks and their clothes like <laughs> look, look at their new uh, short shirts, and this is uh, Siv, the most poli- beautiful police in Sweden. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. mm. So, <laughs> uh, and many of those articles were, they were actually from the seventies, and that that surprised me because that's I, the area of equality. Yeah, and it's like yeah, that wasn't mm. it wasn't that long ago. I was alive then. <laughs> mm. I was uh, that was in my teens, so um, I was surprised to see that. And also, I was also surprised to learn when I spoke to these female police officers that um, none of them actually felt discriminated at that point in time. But when you look back, you know, when you look at the facts of how it really was, there was certainly discrimination. But but you can take what you see every day. It's yes, like it's like the natural, yeah. uh, the natural thing, and you don't react exactly. Hmm. I also need to ask you about your some of the characters that mm. you've created. Uh, please introduce us to a few of them. Okay, so um, the the first character that really came to me was Hanna. She's very central in the first book. She's a sixty-year-old woman. She's a behavioral scientist and she has um, she suffers from early onset dementia. So she has a lot of problems with her memory. And I, I just thought it would be so interesting to have not just a female character, but one that is a bit older. And also in this book, she falls in love. And I'd like to show uh, I'd like to show a woman who is a bit older, but still passionate in love. And also the fact that she was struggling with this disease that opened up a lot of um, possibilities for me as a writer to play with the fact that, you know, um, you can't really trust her because she can't really trust herself due to this dementia. Mm. And then 
In the in the second book, uh, after she's gone, we have uh, one character I really like. His name is Jake. He's 14 years old and he lives in the small village of Orenberg. And he likes to dress up as a woman. <laughs> that's his that's his big secret that he protects. And um, that was also very, very interesting to work with. And I thought initially it would be really hard to write about a 14-year-old boy because I'm so much older and I'm a woman. But um, it was really easy. I really connected with him easily, I think. Mm. <laughs> so... Just going back to the bridge builder theme, even though you say that some people have a negative view of Sweden, I know that like Swedish or, or Nordic crime noir really has put Sweden and Scandinavia on the map. Um, so tell us a little bit about, I mean, bridges go two ways. So tell mm-hmm. us a bit about the feedback you're getting. Well, uh, when when I'm abroad and talk about my books, we always end up having very long discussions about uh, the Swedish society and uh, inevitably also about the society in the country where I am visiting. So, um, and it's interesting because pretty often the the subjects and the the issues, the questions are the same. It's a lot about immigration. It's a lot about crime. It's a lot about the um, the growth of these um, conservative and uh, right-wing parties, and especially in some countries like Poland and Hungary, for example. So we talk a lot, a lot about this. So I get, to, of course, I get to learn a, a lot about their countries and their issues, and, but I'm always surprised to see how similar it is. And we, we, you know, we really live in this global world. And I This, of course, also inspires me in my writing. And the other thing that always comes up when I'm abroad is the fact that I'm a woman and I write about crime and I write about very violent things. And some sometimes I get the question, how is this even possible? And for me, that's such a strange question. I can't even, you know, I can't even answer it. Uh, why wouldn't I be able to talk? Yeah, you told me the other day, like, you who are so sweet, how can you write about exactly. crimes? Exactly. And uh, I mean, what do you say when you get that kind of question? Um, you maybe... look quite sweet yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and also, I get the question why there are so many female crime authors So I decided to actually find out how many female crime authors we have in Sweden. Not how many, but I mean the proportion of male versus female crime authors. And it turns out that it's approximately 50-50. So half of us are men and half women. And um, that's something, I mean, if you have that situation, it's it's hard to argue or explain why it's, why it's like that, because that's, That that would be the normal thing, right? For me, at least. But in many countries, it's um, it's quite rare for women to write um, these kind of books. So, what technology do you use when you're writing, and what trends do you see in the world of books? This is quite interesting, and I I think. Um, can be helpful to separate uh, a few things here. We can talk about the actual writing of books, we can talk about the publishing of books and the distribution of books. But the the writing, at least for me, is I'm pretty low-tech and I'm pretty old-school, so 
I write on my computer and most writers do that and it facilitates your work a lot because when you have to rewrite obviously you don't have to I mean you can use what you've already written so far mm. but um, there are some older writers who actually um, hand, do handwriting mm. for example and uh, I have some younger author friends and they, they write on their mobiles on their way to work for example <laughs> I could never do that it's, no, it's too, it's too small and too, <laughs> small, too <laughs> slow for me but when when you look at the publishing of books, um, there's been a lot of change mm. uh, over the past ten years. Mm. So there are a lot of self-publishing services now, which you know makes it easier for um, many people to publish books by themselves. And uh, also on internet, there are a lot of communities for people who write, such as fan fiction, for example. And when it comes to distribution. Uh, we've seen a huge growth of um, uh, audiobooks streaming, I mean, streamed audiobooks. Um, so uh, that has really changed the business because um, the physical book obviously has the sales are going down, but uh, audiobooks are growing really fast, at least in Scandinavia. Mm. And in countries like the US, um, ebooks are really, it's a big thing. It's not a big thing here in Sweden. So um, there you really see that, see that the technology has impacted the business a lot. Do you use your own voice when, when you have audiobooks? No, I have. A, and most authors actually have a professional um, actors uh, who, who read the books. Yeah. Okay. So talking about the world of writers, some doing it handwritten and you doing it on the computer. What does everyday life look like for you i mean do you have to are you lonely do you have to make a schedule so you don't walk around cleaning the house all day how disciplined do you have to be i need i think you need to have quite a lot of discipline because you know a book is it's quite long <laughs> if you if you um, don't uh, write every day the, the risk is that you'll end up uh, very short of time in the end of the process and you don't want to go there so i try to um, write uh, and and work every day but a book takes for me about a year to finish and uh, you can divide that process into several phases so Initially, there's the like the brainstorming or you want to come up with a good idea, basically, and you want to research it. And research can be very extensive. For example, for The Shadow Hunter, there was extensive research that I needed to do. But for other books, it's not a lot of research. And then there's the detailed planning of the book where I write a synopsis. It's like a summary of the book, basically. And then I divide it into um, two chapters and outline what's going to happen in every chapter. And after that, I start writing the actual book. And um, at some point in time, I send it off to my editor and she <laughs> reads it and she comes back with a million comments and I rewrite. And then it's an iterative process where I'll send her new stuff and she'll get back to me with new comments. And eventually we, we end up with a... Uh, a book and this sounds pretty structured right but sometimes when I when I start to actually write the book things happen not just sometimes all the time I would say so there is an like an element of chaos in this where mm -hmm. I start changing the 
synopsis and rewrite the chapters and the characters. <laughs> they take on a life of their own. So uh, do they hunt you at night? Well, you know, sometimes they do. I, I will wake up at night and uh, have ideas about things I want to put in the book. And I always keep this notebook on my beside my bed so I can make uh, small notes if I wake up. But Or if I don't have my notebook, I'll send myself a, a text message uh, to make sure I don't forget it. So they, they do haunt me. And it's the last thing... I think about before I go to sleep and it's the first thing I think about when I wake up. It's the book and my my story basically. But you work from home. Do you have like a specific corner where that no one gets to touch that this is <laughs> No. I I work at home. I uh, I'll sit in the bed and write or the sofa or rarely at the desk actually. Um, but um, basically everywhere, and I, I, I can write everywhere. I, I also write a lot uh, in the library, when I'm on the train or the plane, everywhere. So, what inspires you, and and how do you um, find your research and everything? You you told us some about it, but mm. how do you get up with a story mm. from start, mm. even if it changes, as mm. you said. Mm. I think inspiration can come from so many different sources. I I watch a lot of TV series like Netflix and HBO and there are so many great uh, TV series now, I think. Um, I read a lot of books, of course. Mm -hmm. And um, there's also reality. And and I hate to use the word inspiration there because in in real life, uh, crimes are terrible and people get hurt and killed but I'm certainly influenced by reality also. And what do you do uh, your private life? The thing is do I have a private life? I don't know. <laughs> I th- yeah I do have a private life but with my job you know it's not like I have a private life and a job because everything's so in- entangled. It's I don't really separate private life and work. No, I can understand that. Because I work all the time, basically, but then I can take time off and do other stuff whenever I want to. So Mm. I'm all, in a way, I think I'm always working because whenever I watch TV or talk to somebody, I'm always thinking about how I could, you know, would this work in a book? This sounds terrible. It's not like you're going to end up in my next book here, I promise. But <laughs> the it's, next you never it's know. always about podcasting. <laughs> it's always you in the know. back of my mind. I think it's so it's so important for me. Um, it's not a job. Uh, it's so much more than a job. It's it's a passion, uh, and I'm so uh, I feel so privileged that I that I, that I found this. I could, you know, I could have continued working in marketing. My life would have been great, but mm. I would never have found this this passion, this one thing that that is so much more important to me than everything else. So whenever I'm like in the middle of a book, I, I get really scared that I'm going to be hit by a bus or something. And it's not, I'm not really scared that my family will be alone. I'm just, I'm just terrified that I won't be able to finish my book. <laughs> <laughs> I know it sounds weird, but it's um, it's so important to me. Mm. But you don't have any hobbies except for writing, so I do. I mean, I I do. I I take long. I 
take long walks every day. I mm, really that's like good. that. And, I and inspiring a, as well. Yes, and I do a lot of problem solving, just walking in nature or jogging. I play tennis. Uh, mm, I, so you do other stuff. I do other stuff. I do <laughs> yoga. I like to travel. Ah. I have a family. They're, yeah. of course, They're the there. most important for me. <laughs> uh, my son lives in New York, so I travel uh, every now and then to New York to meet him. And um, My favorite city. <laughs> yeah. I, have, I, have, I like New York, but I Manhattan is kind of... It's, I guess, too busy for me. Too mm. much people. Uh, traffic is very busy. It makes me tired. I miss nature. I want, I want nature. Mm. Uh, and I meet with my friends. I, I think I have, apart from this job, which is not an ordinary job, obviously, I, I have a very ordinary life. Hmm. Or, well... <laughs> <laughs> for you, it's ordinary. Yeah. For us, it's amazing. Mm. So... Say 30 years from now, when you sit in front of the fire with your grandchildren, maybe, uh, what stories from this part in your life do you want to tell them? What are the best stories? Uh, I may want to tell them about the time I went to my first book fair in Gothenburg in Sweden when I just started writing. And um, I had a seminar. I was going to talk about my new book with my editor, and there was this huge room and nobody came and there was oh, all right maybe two two persons or something like that so uh, that was very discouraging and afterwards I was going to sign books outside the seminar room and uh, of course nobody came to to buy any books or have any books signed but eventually this one guy showed up with a camera and I automatically smiled at him And he was like, could you please move? I want to take a picture of the poster beside you, behind you. <laughs> oh, and um, <laughs> it actually, so when I tell this story because sometimes people think, think I have such a glamorous job. But in fact, it was like this for many years. Mm. I would go to signings and very few people would show up. And, and it would be very, in a way it was depressing, but I always had this great love and passion for for the actual craft for what I did so it didn't matter and in the end all the hard work paid off and um, I I was able to support myself and get a lot of readers and it was just so worth it but what I would like to say to my grandchildren maybe is that the I think so many things in life are um Uh, are tough but it's important I think it's a struggle about finding it's all about finding your passion your passion for for something and it could be your job or your family or you know to do good or whatever but once you find this thing hold on to it because I can't promise you wealth or success but I can promise you that you will have a very rich life and you you'll feel very fulfilled Very beautiful last words. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's a wrap. Thank you, Camilla, so much for sharing your Thank you. So nice story. to have you here. Yeah. And thank you all for listening to the BBS pod.
Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.